We are in Acts 28. I ask you to please open up your Bibles, your electronic devices, to Acts chapter 28. I mentioned last time that Acts 27 and 28 go together. So we'll, uh, we'll get there. But of course, before we even get to the preaching part, pray. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help and guidance. Father, we commit ourselves to you now, not just in song, but now in the act of preaching and active listening of your inerrant word. Father, we desire more than the food we will have in an hour or so. We desire spiritual nourishment from your word and we know that nourishing of your word will not happen apart from your Holy Spirit so we ask that the Holy Spirit now that has taken residence in the heart of your people would soften hearts would challenge hearts would probe hearts right that uncomfortable poke nudge for us to really assess where we stand and what we believe and why we believe what we believe. So I ask now that you would be with us. We commit to you. We humble ourselves. Be with me as I, as I preach and let it not be my words, but your word that reaches the heart and the minds of your people and anyone here that doesn't know you, that they will know the living God and the risen Christ. I pray for Edwin as he is also preaching here this morning in the DR, that you would be with our brother. Use, use him with the very gifts and talents that you have given him to bring others as they hear the gospel to be encouraged, comforted, and to know Christ as their living God, as their living Lord, as their living Savior. So be with our brother. Be with those listening to him as well and with anyone else preaching your word here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you surveyed just people tomorrow in your office, maybe at school, university, classroom, and you asked them, what's the greatest commodity the world has? What would you, what would you think they would say? What, would your, what do you think the top three answers would be? Oil? Probably. Oil. I know you guys as believers, you're probably like, oh, no, we know where you're going with this. But let's be honest, the world doesn't, right? And they would probably say oil, maybe gold, maybe silver, right? Those are pretty valuable. But the one I'm referring to is not tangible. It's not something you can hold with your hands and put in your pocket and fold and put in your wallet. It's intent. Ah, energy. No, not energy either. It's not energy. What do I mean by commodity? I mean, maybe perhaps it's better if I define it for you. How does the dictionary define commodity? Well, it could be an economic good, such as a product of agriculture or mining. Our brother Edwin, you've probably seen his pictures of those big Komatsu tractors. Well, that's what he does. He provides those tractors, and then they go out there, and they start mining and picking up all the uh, whatever's in the earth, all that dirt that's valuable, right? Copper and, and zinc and all this stuff. Fertilizers, well, an article of commerce. That's what 
a commodity can be. Another way of putting it is also something useful or valued. A good. Right? You can have raw materials, but then they go somewhere and get processed, right? Certain parts, certain parts of the world have certain uh, resources that others don't. So today, when we, when we look at Acts 28, and we look at this last chapter, I started thinking back, and as I mentioned earlier, this journey began in Acts in May 2019. So almost four years later, and granted, that's not that I'm some amazing preacher. I'm not preaching every week. But it's taken four years. And we get here, and what's, why do I mention that? It's because... Where we began in May of 2019 is exactly where we're going to end on February 26, 2023. That what we saw in the beginning of Acts is not going to be any different than how we're going to end. And hopefully you'll be able to see that. See, Luke began Acts writing to who? To Theophilus book of Acts is a continuation of the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke was also written to Theophilus. And so Luke is writing to Theophilus and he says this in Luke 1.4, so that you would have certainty concerning the things you were taught. So you would have certainty, no doubt, not a little bit of, of doubt, no, that you would be certain of the things you were taught. And this, and what we've seen through Luke, and even through Acts, is Luke's care, how careful he is, because he's a physician, in documenting everything. We saw that in Acts 27. Why, why does he spend so much time on a shipwreck? Think about that. Why does he spend so much time? Because that's Luke. Luke is a physician, and he takes that meticulous effort to jot down things and record things. Because by trade, that's what he is skilled at. It begins, Acts begins with the Lord's ascension. The Lord is about to be taken away. He's there with his disciples. He's already been crucified. And there he is, appears to his disciples, and there he's about to ascend. And what are they telling him? What's, what's happening, Right? And Jesus says this in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I, Jesus, tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That Helper is the Holy Spirit. That Helper is the one that we prayed for here this morning to work in our hearts, to work in my heart. And so through Acts, we see how the Holy Spirit has been strengthening the disciples. We've been actually seeing all these miracles happening, how the Holy Spirit is drawing people, softening hearts. As the truth is being proclaimed, people are coming to understand that truth and putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And you know who... One of those people was that came to know Christ as Lord and Savior was Saul of Tarsus. In Acts 9, on that road, this Pharisee, educated, knowledgeable in the Old Testament, 
comes to know Christ as Lord and as Savior. And Christ commissions him and says, to take the good news, you, Paul, will take the good news to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. Interestingly, what is the greatest commodity? What is the world's greatest commodity? It's the gospel. The greatest good that this world needs is not more oil, it's not more gold, it's not more silver, it certainly isn't more lithium for your battery-operated vehicles. It is the gospel. That is what we have been called to take, and that is exactly what Paul is doing. That is exactly what we've been seeing through the arc of, of Scripture from Acts 1 all the way to Acts 28. In Acts 9, the Lord saves Paul. And what do we spend the rest of the time doing? Seeing people come to know, seeing Paul going from city to city throughout Asia and Asia Minor to come to know Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Funny enough, Acts 27 and 28 do exactly that. What Paul was commissioned to do, what Jesus commissioned Paul to do in Acts 9. Remember? Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. He's been preaching to the Gentiles, to the sailors, to the Roman guards, to the prisoners. The king, guess who he's going, why is he on his way to Rome? To stand before Caesar. And who is he going to stand before also and give one last account before the Jews? The full commission there before us in Acts 28. So my outline here this morning is four points. For those of you who are taking notes. Number one, our Heavenly Father is always at work. Our Heavenly Father is always at work. Number two, the gospel in action and a warning. The gospel in action and a warning. Number three, the hospitality of God's people. And number four, God's people only have one mission. And that's verses 17 through 30. So our Heavenly Father is always at work. Let's look at the first six verses there. And if you have your Bibles there, let us read Acts chapter 28. You're like, oh, he hasn't even read Scripture yet. Well, here we go. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. 
It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, of, in the island a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli, or Putili, however you want to pronounce it, where we found brothers. We were invited to stay with them for seven days, and we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And that sect is referring to that of Christ. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among, them, among themselves, they departed after Paul and had made one statement. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And this comes from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And this is a reading of God's word. You probably noticed there that there is no verse 29, right? You guys, how careful you guys are in reading. Well, why is there no verse 29? Well, because some of the manuscripts don't. Did it include it? And when you go back into history and how uh, Wycliffe 
um, and, and others had translated scripture and from the Latin and so on and so forth. Anyway, point is that some of the manuscripts, without getting into that rabbit hole, um, it just wasn't in some of the manuscripts. That's why you see it um, edited, at least for the ESV. Other versions will include it. Um, so the first point that we have here, okay, is the Lord is always at work. Verses 1 through 6. See, Paul arrives as a prisoner to Malta. And Luke documents that this viper comes out and bites him. I get it. How in the world does a viper <laughs> bite him? Vipers are venomous. And he doesn't fall down dead. So, of course, there's been debate. It was this really a viper? Was this perhaps maybe a non-venomous snake that was mistakenly, or that was mistaken for a viper? Commentators don't, won't agree on this. It could be that it was a viper. And if it was, it probably was, the Lord can make sure he protects Paul, right? If Paul can raise and pray over someone that had fallen out of a window, right, after he was preaching, and raise him from the dead, a viper, the venom of a viper, is not going to be anything or an obstacle for the Lord. Alternatively, you can say, well, maybe it was in Malta because history says that on Malta there's no record of, of ever being any venomous snakes. So maybe he wasn't at Malta, maybe he was at another island in the Adriatic Sea. Perhaps. I don't know. What is the point? The point isn't for us to get caught up on whether this was a viper or not. The point of the matter is that the natives saw Paul as a prisoner, as a murderer, because he was bitten. The fact that he was bitten proves that he was a murderer. But the moment he shakes him off and nothing, he doesn't fall down dead as they had expected... What happens? Maybe he's not a murderer. Maybe he's a god. And maybe we were wrong. And he goes from being this, if you follow the connection and the land of, uh, of Luke's thought is, he goes literally from being a murderer to a god to a healer. That everybody starts bringing everybody, uh, another Publius, and we see that, and we're going to get to that in a second. What is the point? See, the people back then left room for the miraculous. Do we leave room for the miraculous? Do we as a people leave room for the miraculous? We're reformed and we're, oh, well, we're reformed and, you know, uh, God is sovereign and, and uh, these miracles don't happen. Listen, the Lord is still operating today. And so I'm a cessationist. I, I understand. I... I'm not seeing, you know, limbs growing from people's arms. And, and I know you might have healing crusades, and some of you have been part of that and seen that. All I'm simply saying is that I will not put God in a box. God is God, and he will do as he pleases. Therefore, that means now what I do know is that he won't contradict his word. He won't go against his character or his nature. That we know, but he is still God, and he can do it. See, for us... If it can't be explained by the God science, therefore, it can't happen. If science can't explain it, there's no, there's no room. Like, we have to wait, right? We have to wait for all these things to pan out over time, and then hopefully science will explain it. But in the meantime, don't tell me there's a God. That's some of you what you've heard in your, in your classroom, in your, in your university classrooms. Science will explain it eventually. 
That is a miracle. And he would go to a cross to die for sinners like you and me, to take your place and mine on a cross. He became that unblemished sacrifice for sinners. That is the God who shook off that viper and protected Paul. Let that truth take root in your heart, beloved. Don't let it just simply go in one ear and out the other. The fact that we may not understand everything, and I get it, we won't, because Paul said we will only see in part. We will, there's many things that we won't understand on this side of heaven. But one thing we should understand and we must understand is that God sent His only begotten Son to die in the place of sinners. That is not something that we should gloss over. Father is always at work. Not only was He working in the heart of the natives, He was working in the heart of that Pharisee turned gospel preacher. Why? Why do I say that? Because He's going to start showing compassion to the natives. This is the gospel in action, point two, verses 7 through 10. There's a gospel action that's taking place. Paul, I mean, think about it. He's being labeled a murderer. The only reason they don't see him as a murderer is because of a snake that falls off. They don't even know his story. They didn't take time to understand who, who Paul was, what he had gone through. No, they just labeled him as a murderer. And yet Paul, because his heart is so fixated on the gospel... He doesn't say, you know what, stand back. I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. Instead, what does he do? He goes and heals Publius's, probably the governor of Malta at the time, and heals his father. He heals his father. And people start seeing this, right? what they would call this Malta fever, or the fever of Malta, and they start bringing all the locals, everyone who's sick, they start bringing him to Paul. What does Paul do? Starts healing them. Paul's compassion. Doesn't it remind you of someone? Does it remind you of your Savior who showed you compassion on a cross? Does it show you, does it remind you of your Savior, the one that said, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do on a cross? That is the heart of Paul. Paul's faith is not dead, it's active. Sometimes we just want to theorize about what we believe and why we're a Calvinist and why I'm not such and why I believe these five points. Beloved, if that, and I've said it before, if your theology ends and begins simply with Reformed theology and there is no love, guess what you have become? A clanging symbol. A noisy gong. Not my words. Paul says that to the Corinthians. This is Paul talking about himself. If I have prophetic powers, and he does, and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and he does because the Lord had revealed them to him, and I have all faith, which obviously he does, I mean, the Lord is using him to heal, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. All my theology doesn't add up to an ant an anthill. It doesn't. Because all it is is just simply head knowledge. Never to be displayed 
in your love for your neighbor, which was Christ's second commandment. Love thy neighbor as yourself. What is Paul doing? He's loving his neighbor. Those that didn't know the gospel, he is living it. He is putting it out there for them to see. Why? Because that was the very heart that Jesus had when he walked this earth. Who was Jesus intermingling with? Surely the the Pharisees and the scribes, that's what you read in Scripture, right? Jesus would just gravitate to the Pharisees and the scribes. No. Who was he gravitating to? Who was gravitating to him? Those that were hurt. He would go to the ones that, that needed not just the knowledge, but that needed him. That is our Savior, beloved. We must have a gospel mindset. That is not an option. It is not a suggestion. We must have a gospel mindset. We must think with gospel thoughts. Why? Because your life is not your own. Your life was bought with a price. It was bought with the blood of the Lamb. The very one that we will in one moment, in a few minutes be partaking of in communion. That is why. Can you say to the Lord Jesus right now, I am your slave. And do with me whatever you want. Take me wherever you want. Have me do whatever you want. Lead me and I'll go. Even if it costs me my family. That's the challenge. Jesus put it that clear. We heard it a couple weeks ago. Jesus put it black and white. You can't have one foot and one in the other. If you're not willing to forsake your wife, your children, your parents. Now, of course, God is not putting those things in opposition. What he is simply doing is saying, do you esteem me that much? Am I on the platform of your heart? Or is it your wife and your children and your home? Because the only reason I can serve my wife and my children, or you alternatively, women, your spouse and your children, your husbands, is because Christ is number one in your heart. Otherwise, it's, you have it backwards. So we have to have a gospel mindset. We have to be his feet wherever we go. Are you willing to be his feet, his mouth, his hands this week? And maybe this past week, you dropped the ball. Well, guess what? You're not the only one that dropped the ball. I missed opportunities too. But guess what? God's grace gives you an opportunity to go ahead and pick up the ball and run with that gospel ball and give it to someone else next time. We just have to be vigilant. We have to have spiritual eyes to see because sometimes we're so consumed with our thoughts, we're so consumed with our mess, we're so consumed with everything around us and the noise, and we forget that the Lord is still working. The gospel in action. But that's not all we see in in these verses. We also see a warning. There's no mention that these 
Maltese people, these natives, came to know Christ. Do you see that in the text? I don't see that in the text. All you see, Luke, write, Luke writes, they express gratitude, right? Paul healed them, and they expressed that gratitude by giving them everything they needed as they went on board a ship. But there's no mention of repentance. Now, I'm not going to speculate whether they came to know Christ or not. Maybe they did later on. But that would be equally speculating as we're seeing here. What's the warning? Don't mistake gratitude to God for His provisions and healing for salvation. Don't think because God answered your prayer and provided for you in a moment of need, I must be His child. You get that, kids? Some of you, because He helped you find employment or because He healed your child or your spouse or whatever, whoever it might be, just because He did it doesn't mean I'm His and He loves me. You know why He precisely did it? Because the rain, uh, excuse me, the sun shines on the just and on the unjust alike. It's His common grace. It just simply means that the Lord provided for you because that's who He is. Not because you deserved it, but because of who He is. That was precisely Dayron's point last week in James. We love the gift. We love the healing. But we reject the one that provides it. That was his point. And we see it again. Maybe later on they come to know and maybe we'll see some of them in heaven one day. But for right now the scripture doesn't say it. So I won't speculate on it. So the, the Lord is always at work. The gospel in action. So be careful as well to mistake gratitude and God's provision as somehow you are one of His. We'll get to how you can know that you are truly one of His later on. Point three, the generosity and hospitality of God's people. The generosity... In verses 11 and 16, for the first time we see God's people show hospitality. Right? I'm, excuse me, not for the first time. We've been seeing it throughout as Paul's been going through different cities. Right? Going through different parts. There you see the saints come. Hey, Paul, come in. Luke taking in Jason, you know. Jason even got taken out by the mob because he gave a place to Paul to hide because they were looking for him. And, Paul, and Jason gets taken out. So we've seen these things. The generosity of the saints is no small thing. How many times do we see in Acts Paul being provided for, for instance, by the Philippians? You guys sent to me for my needs. The generosity of God's people. This is a trademark of you. This should be a trademark of you and me as believers in Christ. He, he arrives there. He stays with them for seven days there in Putili. Um, Paul gets there, arrives. Think about this. They come to see him. Other saints come to Paul. Okay? They were traveling about, that day, about 40 miles. In a day, typically, during those times, you might travel. You might travel for about eight hours, and you might cover about 20 miles. 
That's the equivalent of me driving to the other side of the, of the states. Would you do that? Would you get in a car and just simply drive to California? I wouldn't even drive to northern Florida. I detest driving through Florida. It's so flat. I hate it. And I know Jesus is laughing because they tell me about it. He just did it a couple times. Going to Louisiana. It's just so flat. It's boring. You start getting into the mountains there in the Appalachian. Wow, that's beautiful. You start going up and down. But man, going through Florida? Please. And I wouldn't do it. And these brothers and saints, and they don't have the transportation that we have today. So imagine the, 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 the effort that it must have taken for them to go see Paul. By the way, they didn't have podcasts to know about Paul and his ministry. They go there. They had heard about Paul. They don't know much about him. We might say, yeah, but Freddie, I mean, seriously, I mean, he's a, he perhaps is a celebrity preacher, you know, uh, people, yeah, yeah, perhaps people knew about him. But things didn't circulate the way they circulate today. They just didn't. And so you're going to go see someone that you really don't know. But they went. And sometimes we think that people's generosity and hospitality only comes in the form of material things. The fact that those saints went there to see Paul you know what Luke documents? Paul was encouraged. He grew in courage and boldness. Beloved, don't ever underestimate. Don't ever underestimate that opportunity that you may have to comfort a brother or a sister. You may have no idea what that might do to that brother or that sister in that moment. Just simply putting your arm around that brother or that sister and saying, I'm praying for you. May I pray for you? Might be the very oasis in the spiritual desert that they've been going through. They're parched and they've been asking for some water. And right now I couldn't even bring myself to pray. And there you are praying for them. Don't ever underestimate those opportunities that the Lord brings into your life. Because they are so valuable. Look at someone like Paul, someone that we would never think, oh, he's a super, he's a super. No, he's not. He needed to be encouraged, and the Lord provided for him through his people. Amazing. They endured this inconvenience of travel on dirt roads. We have some of the best roads here in Florida. Go up north where they have the winter and the salt, and you see all those, all those potholes. Go up there and drive. See how many times you're changing your tires a year. That's inconvenience. And yet, they endured that to see Paul and minister to him. The gospel is something that we need to believe. The gospel is something we have to treasure and we have to uphold in our hearts, beloved. There is no alternative. Because we will do what's insane, what appears to be insane to the world. You will do what appears completely ridiculous, laughable at times. You're doing what? Yeah. I mean, why would I spend time working on a sermon while other people are perhaps on a, on a bay 
enjoying the beach today. Why are you here? Surely it's not because of me. So why are you here? Because the gospel is that important. Gathering with God's people is that important. Because that is what makes up God's economy. And the final point. God's people have only one mission. Luke documents Paul's final defense against the Roman Jews. Verses 17 through 30. I won't read it. I already read it, but you have the opportunity to do so. Paul's mission didn't change. It hasn't changed. It will not change. He doesn't get creative. He doesn't get clever. He's not trying to reinvent the wheel. He is just simply preaching the same truth that he's actually been preaching from city to city. It's the same gospel that Paul came to believe, embrace, and proclaim. You can remember those three words. The gospel is to be believed, embraced, and proclaimed. That's what we're called to do. And that is exactly what Paul, what Paul is doing. Now, be prepared. Be prepared. For what? Verse 18. To have your faith examined. Be prepared because people will question you. How many of you have been asked why you believe what you believe? I'm sure some of you have been asked that question. What did you say? Maybe some of you were caught off guard and you really didn't know what to say. And then you go back, man, now I really need to study because how is it that I couldn't even answer the basic things of my faith? Because it's important. You will be examined by people. We are a thinking faith. No one asked asked you before walking in here to check your brain at the door. No one told you that. You come in with your thinking cap and you look at the scriptures to see what the scriptures say and if it's true. You come with the heart of a Berean. The Bereans didn't hold back because, oh, well, it's Paul. Put the, put the scrolls away. This man's, this man, no. Just because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, they still went back and studied and looked into the scrolls and the scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying made correlated with the Old Testament. That's the heart that we need to have. To publicly express our faith in Christ is to put yourself in the eye examination. You will be called to testify at some point. Not necessarily in a courtroom, but in the courtroom of, in the spiritual courtroom of sorts. You know, my wife, if you've spoken to her at some point, she's told you her background one of the things that she enjoyed doing before she was an unbeliever, and I'm sorry, because I know you're translating this, but she enjoyed challenging Christians in their faith. You've probably heard her say, I turn people like you into pagans. Because you will not believe how many people profess to know Christ, say, I'm a believer, but don't know what they've believed in or in whom they have believed. They have just simply accepted the things, haven't studied the scriptures, and then when they're asked and, 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 and scrutinized, oh, wow, I never really thought about that. Because that is what happens in our world. Kids, if you're young and you know Christ, know your foundation. Know who is your foundation. Parents, teach your children the foundation. 
teach them that it's Christ. Teach them that there is no other foundation apart from Christ. For on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. That is what they need to know and that is what they need to hear. Build them on that truth. Don't take it lightly. I've said it before, your gap with your children, that window is closing and it's getting narrower and narrower and narrower. If you, you know, window, it's, it's getting, at one point, they're going to be off in the world. They will be sitting in front of that college professor mocking their faith. Oh, you believe in, oh, in that, that God of the Bible, huh? The one that would murder people in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, what a great God. What do you say? How do you respond? Praise the Lord, we have apologetics. Praise the Lord, we have apologetics. But a word of caveat, the apologetics is not the gospel. Apologetics will help you perhaps understand why you believe what you believe. But apologetics will not save anyone. Faith in Christ alone is what saves people. Your hope in the gospel is the only thing that will change hearts. Faith that comes from Him is what will change my heart, soften it, and see finally Christ for who He is. The cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, the, the argument for morality, none of those things. They might help, but they are not the gospel. So, know your faith because it will be examined. Secondly, People will walk away. People will walk away. Verses 23 and 25, you see that. What did the Jews do? Some heard it, kind of murmured among themselves. Some went off, and the other one stayed. Why? Because they were offended by what Paul said, what we read there in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Allow me to read to you, because I, I found this fascinating, so I don't want to butcher it. Like, I have to read it. Listen to what the Bible commentator Alec Matir says about this particular verse in Isaiah. Pay attention now, if you can follow me for a second. I'll read it slow. He says, allow me to say this. It's hard for us to understand, right? Because we start reading this and we're like, yeah, but why is it that some hear and some don't? Like, why is it that some are understanding and some aren't? Is it that God purposely is closing the ear of some? And we find an offense to that. We find that an offense and we say, well, that's not fair. Bear with me and listen to what Alec Matir says. He says, those who resist the truth can be changed only by telling them the truth. But, do, but to do this exposes them to the danger of rejecting the truth yet once again. So you can go ahead and proclaim because the only way they're going to their hearts will change is by proclaiming the truth. Do you see that? By, by the fact that you're proclaiming the truth is making them liable once again to reject it. That is in essence what he's saying. And maybe, not that it is, but maybe this further rejection will push them beyond the point of no return. And they will become irretrievably hardened in mind and heart. It was as just such a time that Isaiah was called to the prophetic preaching office and understood what his terms of commission meant. 
He was to bring God's word with fresh, even unparalleled clarity. For only the truth could win and change them. But in their negative response, his hearers would pass to the point of no return. The opportunity, pay attention here, the opportunity which could spell their salvation would spell their judgment. That's the reality of the gospel. Truth is either believed or it is not. But there is no in-between. We either believe all of it or we don't. And Paul's heart, and what is that truth? The gospel. That was Paul's mission. And that is what our mission should be for moving forward every day. He made it clear to the Romans that salvation of God will not be limited only to the Jews, but would also be offered to the Gentiles as well. Why? Because they will listen. They will listen. Because the type of faith that the Lord works is a living faith that opens the eyes and opens the ears of people who are blind. Why do we enjoy singing Amazing Grace so much? I was blind, but now I see. How did you become to see? Not because you tried harder, but because the Lord opened your eyes. That was the beauty of John Newton's hymn at that time. And even today, that he opened my eyes. Because quite frankly, I was dead in my own sin and my own trespasses. And I didn't even realize I was blind. And Paul, he may have been limited in terms of travel. But you know what wasn't limited? His pen. His pen wasn't limited. Out of that particular moment, there, for the remaining two years, as he was waiting... He pens four letters. Four letters, what we know as the prison letters. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and even writes that personal letter to Philemon. What excuse do we have for our time? Prison couldn't contain Paul. The gospel message was going to go forth. He might have been under house arrest. But the gospel was going to make it past those doors. And I pray that with us, that's exactly the case. That with you and with me, we wouldn't be limited to our comfort zones. But that we too, by God's grace, go forth and preach the gospel. Kids, parents, anyone here that doesn't know Christ, you heard the gospel this morning. You heard the truth. Will you believe the truth? Be careful to reject it once again. I don't know when that point of no return is. I don't know. All I can tell you is I rejected it many times before coming to Christ. And when I came to Christ, my only regret was that I didn't believe it sooner. And that is what we need to be careful of. That word that they will listen doesn't just mean that they will hear. What it truly means is that they will hear and obey. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden. Jesus said, 
I will give you rest. Come to me. Go to him. Flee to him. He will not turn his back on anyone that comes to him with a contrite heart and a broken spirit. I've never seen it. I don't know if you have. But the scripture says that he doesn't. He doesn't reject those. He doesn't cast them out. Instead, he embraces them and brings them in. And yes, you can come with all your mess. And you can come with all your shenanigans and all the mess-ups that you've made. And Christ will be there waiting. Because that is the kind of Savior that he is.